welcome to Living Water Anglican Church in Albany, Western Australia. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Of memorizing the Apostles' Creed. When I was growing up as a, a young boy in the Methodist Church, we went through a process of in the year nine and confirmation. And one of the things we had to do was to memorize the Apostles' Creed. And for years after that, I mean, even to this, to this day, without saying it here, the, the memories of that still flood back. So it's one of those things that never leaves you. And so uh, it's of great value to repeat that on a regular basis, and I'm glad we're able to do so. Well, when I was back in the U.S. before my wife and I moved to Singapore and then here onto here, Australia, I was for a time a bivocational pastor, meaning that I worked, outside, I worked inside the church and I served a church, but I also worked outside the church. And one of the positions I held outside the church was I worked in customer service for a large furniture retailer in the area. Now, I don't know if you've ever worked in customer service before. I imagine that most of you have had some sort of interaction with customer service representatives, but as you can imagine, that could be challenging at times. But it also could be very rewarding. And it was rewarding because I was able to help people solve their problems. And I actually like to do that. I was able to resolve issues. And I could resolve those issues because I had the authority to do so. The company had vested me with the authority to do certain things, and so I was able to help people, and that was quite rewarding. You see, authority is the power to make things happen. You're in charge. You're in control. Or you have jurisdiction over a certain area or situation. And in our gospel reading today, our passage from Mark's gospel, Jesus reveals that he reveals himself as one with authority. He, not as a savior. He doesn't reveal himself as Messiah or the Son of God. He reveals himself as someone with authority. Thus forcing those present to really think about and wrestle with who he was, who actually was Jesus. And he reveals this authority through his teaching and through confronting an evil spirit. Now in the process, he also points us to something unique about the gospel, which we're going to look at in just a moment. But all of this raises the question of how do we respond? How do we react to the authority of Jesus? So we're going to ask that question again at the end, but we're going to look at the passage in a little bit more detail to learn some things about this. So when we look at the passage of Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, we see that Jesus is ministering in Galilee. He's at the beginning of his ministry. He's in Galilee, and he's near the Sea of Galilee. And one of the cities near on the Sea of Galilee in the northwest corner on the shore is a city called Capernaum. And um, Jesus is there. Capernaum is a, it's a trading port on the Sea of Galilee. It's a, it's a modest-sized city in that day. It's, it's about 1,500 people. Many of them are fishermen, obviously because of the, of the Sea of Galilee or, or the lake there being, being so prominent. But it was actually a very proud city. And uh, Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, Gospel of chapter 11, a little bit later on, Jesus is, pro- is pronouncing some, some condemnations or he's, he's giving pronouncement upon cities who would not fare well at the judgment because they didn't receive his ministry. And Capernaum is one of those cities that is, is so um, declared because they didn't really receive Jesus' ministry. But on this day, earlier than that, he, it's a Sabbath day, and Jesus is doing what all good Jews did on the Sabbath. They went to synagogue. And in the synagogue, Jesus is doing some teaching. And the, what the text tells us, it says the people were amazed. Matter of fact, twice in this short passage, we have this, uh, this description that the people were amazed because they recognized his teaching as having authority, which the teaching of their rabbis lacked. 
And in addition to, being, to doing the teaching and the people being amazed, Jesus is confronted by a demoniac, in other words, a person who was demon-possessed. And so we're going to look at these, these incidences and see what we can learn from them. So the first thing we see is that the, we see Jesus' authority through his teaching. Jesus has, has been doing some teaching. Now, presumably, it's about the kingdom of God. We actually don't know because nowhere in the text does it say Jesus taught on this subject or this topic or this particular issue. We're not given any of the parables he taught. We're not, there's no record of the sayings that Jesus made in the, in the synagogue that day. But if you think about the Sermon on the Mount, if you think about some of the parables Jesus told uh, in other places, in Matthew's Gospel or Luke's Gospel or even John's Gospel, you kind of get the idea of what likely Jesus was talking about because the one common theme, which, which was larger than any other of Jesus' teaching and which all of his teachings centered around, was the idea of the kingdom of God. So in some sense, Jesus is probably teaching about the kingdom of God but he teaches it differently than their regular rabbis. Because you see, Jesus doesn't quote anybody else. He doesn't quote renowned rabbinic teachers. He doesn't give the names of famous scribes. He doesn't base his, uh, the, uh, his teaching on the authority of others as was common in rabbinic circles of that day. And actually, the, one of the best examples of this, of what Jesus didn't do, comes from the movie way back in 1983. I know we're going back a ways. But the 1983 movie, Yentl. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen it or heard of it, but the movie Yentl, starring Barbara Streisand, is a gre- there's a scene in there which is a great example of this because Barbara Streisand plays this character, Yentl, who's a woman, but she, she's, she loves to study, and she loves to study the Torah. And she wants to go to rabbinic school to study the Torah, but she's forbidden because women weren't allowed to do that. So she, so she hides herself as a man in order to try to do that. But along the way, she befriends a, a, a man by the name of Avidor. And there's a scene in the movie where Yentl and Avidor are having this incredible discussion about the Torah. And Yentl would say, well, yeah, but so and, Rabbi so-and-so says this. And Avidor would respond, but Rabbi so-and-so says this. And it was Rabbi says this and Rabbi says this. They would go back and forth just quoting Rabbi after quoting Rabbi after quoting Rabbi. That's all they did. It was just one long discussion based on the quotes of other rabbis. They didn't have any authority in themselves. They were simply basing their discussion on the authority of all these other rabbis. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that at all. Jesus had personal authority, authority on himself, only in himself, not based on the teachings of others, just in himself. We see this most clearly in Matthew's gospel, where in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeatedly says, you have heard that it was said. In other words, referring to the Torah and the laws of Moses and Moses' authority. But I tell you this. You have heard that it was said, this is what others have said, but now I'm telling you this. It's his own authority. It's at a whole other level. And this contrasts with the caution and the hedging of the scribes uh, because Jesus' handling of Scripture must have seemed cavalier to the rabbis, just, just irresponsible. His lack of quoting of others would, seem, would be seen as impudent, even arrogant in the extreme. Who does this fellow think he is? He hadn't gone to their schools He hadn't studied with them. He hadn't studied like they had. Yet, here he was. He's claiming to speak for God with authority that they couldn't possibly match. So they didn't really know what to do with him. But the people, the people took note and they were amazed. Probably a a better way of of expressing this in our day would be to say they were blown away by Jesus' teaching. And they were left asking, who is this man? Who is this guy? which is exactly what Jesus wanted. He wanted them to wrestle with it, to think about 
who actually he was and what he was saying. And this, this brings us to the, to, the, to the second element where we see Jesus' authority. And then we see his authority um, expressed when it comes to being confronted by an evil spirit. Now, it's not, interesting to notice in the passage that Jesus does not seek out the evil spirit. Jesus doesn't confront the evil spirit. The evil spirit seeks out Jesus. The evil spirit exposes himself and he reveals himself and he comes to Jesus and says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now, there are a lot of questions which the very presence of this demon, demon-possessed person in the synagogue raise. So let's think, we, we could spend a lot of time talking about those, but let's just raise a couple of them. Why was the demoniac okay to be in a synagogue? I mean, think about that. That'd be like a demon-possessed person showing up at church and the demon, the demon being okay with that. Now, the, the person, the man was probably self-aware that he was demon-possessed. We typically see that in the Gospels. The people know they're demon-possessed. But there's no initial desire of the demon to be delivered. He's not coming to the synagogue to be delivered. So why is the demoniac okay to be in the synagogue where they're worshiping, supposedly worshiping God? And on the, on the other side of that same question, why was the synagogue okay with a demon-possessed person, a man, being in attendance with them? This man was probably not a stranger to them. He was probably a regular worshiper. And they very likely knew him to be demon-possessed because we see that throughout the Gospels when people are, they were bringing demon-possessed people to Jesus to be delivered. So it was, there was expressions or evidence that these people were demon-possessed. The, the synagogue was okay with a demon-possessed man being amongst them, worshiping with them. This is an indication of the wickedness of the city and the insincerity of their Jewish worship. And in fact, the demoniac cries out because he's in turmoil. Jesus doesn't call out to him. He calls out to Jesus. And the demon recoils instinctively from the purity of Jesus because the demoniac has nothing in common with Jesus. And he cries out, what do you have to do with us? In other words, he's saying, go away. We have nothing in common with you. You make us uncomfortable. Matter of fact, if you bring up the name of Jesus in most public or social contexts today, you're going to get a similar response. Be quiet. You make us uncomfortable. That name you keep talking about, that name of Jesus, it makes us uncomfortable. Now, I'm not saying that the people around you who would say this are demon-possessed, like in the passage, but what I am saying is that anywhere you go, darkness does not like the light. Whether that darkness is moral or intellectual or spiritual, it does not like the light. Moral autonomy does not like to be told that there are God-given, universal, objective moral truths. Intellectual free thinkers today, they don't like to be told that they will be held accountable for their thoughts. And those obsessed with themselves, they don't like to be told that there is another to whom they owe their allegiance. In other words, the spirit of Antichrist does not like to be exposed and confronted with the truth. And instead, it prefers the shadows, the darkness, and the lies. Now, when you look at this passage, it's interesting that when we look at the exact words of the demoniac, because the demon uses the plural pronoun, us. What do you have to do with us? Yet it's clear, because shortly after that, he says, I, I know who you are, which is singular. 
So there's only one demon in the man. There's another demon Jesus casts out in another instance where, where the demon says, we are legion. He's admitting there are many of us in the man. There's only one demon here. There aren't multiple. Yet he initially uses the pronoun us. Why does he do that? Why, why, does, he, why does he refer to us well, us here is likely a reference to the other Jewish synagogue attenders amongst whom the demon felt very comfortable. He's not just saying, what do you have to do with me? He's saying, what do you have to do with us? Meaning all of us here at the synagogue because, because the demon felt, again, very, very at home there. It's, it's actually quite ironic. That would be like a demon-possessed, to put this in very, very practical, personal terms, that would be like a demon-possessed person regularly worshiping here at Living Water we all know the person is demon-possessed. The person knows they're demon-possessed. And everyone's just kind of okay with that. If that were the case, what would that say about our spiritual state? Now, I'm not saying that demon-possessed persons have never been here at Living Water. That's possible. But a regular person who, who is known to be demon-possessed, regularly worshiping here as a demon-possessed person, what would that say about our spiritual state? If that, in fact, were the case, something would be really, really wrong here at Living Water. And in that same vein, something was really wrong in that synagogue. And so Jesus' instant response is to put a muzzle on this unsolicited, involuntary, and unwelcome testimony. And then secondarily, to free the man from his demonic possession and this influence. Now, the Greek word that which is translated, be quiet or be silent, which Jesus used, would probably be better translated as be muzzled. Or we could even put that in a more common vernacular today. Jesus is basically telling the demon, shut up. I mean, we don't normally think of Jesus being quite so, you know, uh, of the common language, but Jesus is basically saying, shut up. And, and, it, and his main emphasis, therefore, is on silencing the demon. And then secondarily, on delivering the demon. But this raises the question again of, of why did Jesus want to silence the demon? After all, what the demon said about Jesus, that he was the Holy One of God, it's actually true. So why is Jesus so, so reluctant to receive that? Why does he want to keep the demon silent? Well, this has to do with something that's quite fascinating about the passage, and that is and unique about the gospel as a whole, which is, in a sense, there's a hiddenness to the gospel. There's a hiddenness to the gospel. And sometimes it's referred to as the messianic secret. It's this tendency of Jesus to downplay or discourage testimony about himself as the Messiah. Now, why is that? Why would Jesus do that? Because when we look throughout the Gospels, Jesus never declares himself to be the Messiah. He never says of himself that he is the anointed one or the holy one of God. Others say it about him, but he never says it of himself. Because Jesus first allows his works of authority, like this deliverance, like his teaching and his preaching. He allows his works of authority and then that, and to demonstrate that authority. And then that general authority of the message and of his actions gradually draws people to the conclusion that, hey, in fact, he must be the Messiah. From Jesus' perspective, better that the people figure it out for themselves than, he, than that he tell them himself. Matter of fact, we see this in Mark's gospel. The first, in the first half of Mark's gospel, Jesus hushes anyone who announces that he's the Messiah. But then we have this pivot point in Mark 8, verse, chapter 8, verse 29, where Peter's confession. Jesus says, who do, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And from that moment then, Jesus openly accepts and acknowledges confession of himself as the Christ. 
but he has to devote a lot of time to explaining what it means that he actually is the Messiah. So there's no more secret after that, but he has to spend time correcting their misunderstanding and of, of himself as Messiah or what this word Messiah means as political um, and worldly and triumphalistic. Instead, Jesus explains that it's about the kingdom. It's spiritual. It's this worldly, but it's mostly otherworldly. And it's about servanthood. Very, very different than their common understanding of Messiah as political and nationalistic. So instead, Jesus has to, Jesus accepted, if Jesus had accepted their accolades, it would have misled them into, in their nationalistic and political dreams. So instead, Jesus leads them step by step, first by what he did and only then by what he said, to the inevitable conclusion that he was and is the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Holy One from God, whom this demoniac actually testifies. It's only after Peter's confession in Mark chapter 8 that we have the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. So Jesus accepts the confession that he is, from others that he is in fact the Christ, and then he can be transfigured along with Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop. And all this culminates in the confession of the centurion at the foot of the cross in Mark 15, where the centurion, who is not a Jew, says, surely this man was the Son of God. It's all leading up to that. But initially, Jesus hides it. Now, this, this hiddenness, we see, we see it throughout the Gospels. In fact, who Jesus was, what he was doing, why he came, what he taught about the kingdom of God. Now, all this is there, but there's a sense of it being hidden. It's not out in the open. You have to search to find it. These concepts of the grace of God, the kingdom of God, they're simple, but they're actually rather profound. The prophet Isaiah alludes to this back in the Old Testament in chapter 45, verse 15, when Isaiah says, truly you are a God who hides himself. That's a rather remarkable passage. Truly you are a God who hides himself. The prophet is not saying that God is unknowable. He's not saying that at all. But what he is saying is that God is not available to just casual seekers. You can't casually come to know God and understand God. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says that God reveals himself to those who search for him. To those who search for him. And so Jesus spoke and he taught in parables and they weren't always clear. Some of the disciples didn't understand them. We wrestle with them to this day. That because Jesus wanted them to wrestle with them. Jesus wanted them to chew on this because it required thought and intention and focus, revelation and faith in order to understand. We get a sense of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul's writing to the Corinthian church in verses 22 through 25 and Paul writes that the Jews, they want a sign. The Greeks, they want wisdom. But Christians, Christians, we Christians preach Christ crucified. In other words, the Jews want something tangible. They want something evidential, something empirical. The Greeks, the Greeks want philosophical wisdom. They want reason alone. But God, God wants faith. Now, faith is not opposed to reason or opposed to evidence because reason and evidence are consistent with the gospel message. But reason alone is not enough. Faith, excuse me, evidence alone is not enough. Reason and evidence want things out in the open. They want everything perfectly clear, perfectly obvious, this logical, easy to see, no faith required. But faith says you have to seek, you have to trust, you have to wrestle, and it's okay to wrestle with those doubts. That's what faith wants. And you know, unfortunately, we are often too like those Jews and Greeks to whom Paul wrote. We want everything clear. 
We want everything obvious, easy, with little, little or no effort required. I was speaking to someone just recently who is not currently a believer. And I asked them, what would it take for you to believe, to come back to the faith? And they said, if, if Jesus, if the resurrected Jesus showed up right here sitting at this table, then I believe. Maybe you've heard that, re- that response before as well. It's a common response. But I understand that, but that doesn't take any faith. If that were the fact, if Jesus came and sat right here in midst us, that wouldn't take any faith. It'd be obvious. It'd be clear. There's no wrestling with it then. No faith required. And that's not what Jesus is after. The gospel is through faith. The gospel is about Christ crucified. It's about God's grace and mercy and love, love for the unlovable. And these concepts are not easy to get your head around. So the gospel requires faith, but it requires searching. It requires seeking. seeking. And when we confront that truth, that salvation is by grace through faith, when we submit to that truth, when we submit to the authority of Jesus as Christ, Messiah, and Lord, well, Kurt Bruner, a Christian writer, says, many refuse to accept the reality of a personal God because they are unwilling to submit to his authority. They're unwilling to hit. When, it, when, when it's just clear and obvious, there's no authority there. When we seek it out, we come to grips with that authority. So as our takeaway this morning, I want to leave you with a couple quick challenges and thoughts. And the first one is, are you fully submitted to the authority of Jesus as Christ, as Messiah and Lord? Jesus demonstrated that authority in his teaching and in his casting out of the demon. But I encourage you to do a quick inventory. Are there any areas of your life this morning that are not wholly submitted to the authority and lordship of Jesus? Are there any areas of your life that are not submitted to the authority of Jesus? Maybe it's in your speech, maybe in your thoughts, in your thought life, or in your attitudes, perhaps in your relationships, or in your finances, maybe in something like your time management. Are these all submitted to the authority of Jesus? And even even getting more practical than this, how about your TV watching and your movie selection? Is that submitted to the authority of Jesus? Your music preferences, your reading habits, are these submitted to the authority of Jesus? And a big one today for everyone, your computer usage, both in terms of content and time, is it submitted to the authority of Jesus? Are all these areas under the authority of Jesus? It's a question we need to be asking ourselves. And secondly, your question is, are you continuing to plumb the depths of the gospel, to break through to that hiddenness of God and seeking and searching after God? Are you continuing to explore the depths of your faith, what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ? This is the reason why personal devotions are so important. Bible study, prayer, um, life groups, personal study. Why it's so vital? Because you can't really grow in your understanding of the gospel. You can't grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ unless you're regularly reading, you're regularly studying, and you're regularly praying. Why? Because the meaning of the gospel is kind of hidden. It's not available to the casual observer. If all you do is show up here on Sunday morning and you do nothing else for your Christian faith, you won't grow very deep. That's not to say you lose your faith, but you won't grow very deep because you won't get it. You won't understand. You won't grow unless you break through that hiddenness and seek and study and learn. That's how we grow. So are you continuing to plumb the depths of the gospel and break through that hiddenness? Or are you content to just cruise along not paying a whole lot of attention, not necessarily doing anything all that bad, but just cruising along on autopilot or cruise control. Now, most of you haven't driven with me, but if you've driven with, a few of you have, if you've driven with me in the car on the freeway, Brent knows this, I don't like cruise control. I never use cruise control in my car. 
because I like to be in touch with the driving experience. I like to be in touch with what I'm doing. I like to feel it. I like to experience the drive. I had a gentleman after the first service say, well, then you must like stick shift and a clutch. And it's, actually, I do. I pre- kind of prefer that. I want to be, you see, I want to be alert. I want to be paying attention. I want to be engaged with the driving experience because I love to drive. And when the cruise control is on in my car, I can't do that. I don't do that. I get lazy. Now, you may or may not agree with me about cruise control regarding cars and driving, and that's okay. But my point is, cruise control does not work in the spiritual life. There is no such thing as cruise control, a spiritual cruise control, or, or a spiritual autopilot. As helpful as those devices are when it comes to cars and airplanes, there is no room for cruise control or autopilot in the Christian life. To be fully submitted to the authority of Jesus requires engagement with Jesus regularly through worship attendance, through prayer, through Bible reading and study, through meditation and fellowship. And so I'd like to pray this morning in closing to this end. So would you bow your heads and your hearts with me? Dear Jesus, we know we ought to be fully submitted to your authority as our Savior and Lord, but honestly, we struggle with submitting sometimes. It goes against our sin nature. It goes against the flesh. And, and we often want to be autonomous, our own boss. We want to be our own authority. So Jesus, forgive us for at times ignoring your authority and just dismissing it. But in your kingdom, there is no such thing as an autonomous Christ follower, only submitted, surrendered Christ followers. And we want to be that this morning. So help us, Father, to submit to your authority and Jesus to trust that you will exercise that authority over us and in our lives for our good and for your glory because you are a good, good God. And for those of us here today who may not yet ever have submitted to your authority, Jesus, I pray that you would move upon their hearts even now by your Holy Spirit so that they would submit to you and begin life anew as a child of God. And we pray all of this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.